Uh, it's been said that a preacher's job is to uh, make the comfortable uncomfortable and uh, make the uncomfortable comfortable. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to just give it my best shot today to make you really uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, we've been going through Ecclesiastes and um, Ecclesiastes has a fair bit to say about wealth. And wealth is something that Westerners need to be very uncomfortable about. Does anyone agree with me? Like in an ongoing way. Like I, I don't think that it's right for a Westerner, an Australian, I don't th- actually think it's right for anyone in this church to be completely comfortable with what they're doing with their wealth. All right? And the reason why I'm saying that is not because I know what you're doing. The reason why I'm saying that is because uh, the wealth that we have is ridiculous compared to uh, a lot of people in the rest of the world. And there's a massive need for people to meet Jesus in the world. So we, I almost feel like we need to have an ongoing discomfort with, uh, with wealth. Is everyone cool with that? And you're not cool with it, all right? And you're already upset, aren't you? It's just like, I need to go to the toilet and I'm taking my car keys with me. <clears throat> you ever watched a movie where you thought that everything was okay? You watched it and all the things happened. You thought, no, oh, this is interesting. That's interesting. And the story just kind of goes along. Um, things were happening. You just kind of go, oh, that's nothing of consequence. That's interesting. Uh, but then you kind of reach the climax of the story and you just go, whoa. Okay, now all this stuff over the last hour means something completely different to what I thought it did. And the climax of the story actually becomes the interpretive lens through which you look at everything that you've just seen. Have you ever seen a movie like that? A classic example of that is, uh, is the movie A Beautiful Mind, which was made way back in the early 2000s. It's about John Nash, a brilliant mathematician. And you watch this movie and you, it's, it's all kind of tracking along and then it gets into this conspiracy theorist kind of thing. And then all of a sudden you find out at the end that the guy's having a hallucination for most of, the, most of the movie. And then you just kind of go, all right, now what I have to do, now that I know what the climax is, I've got to work my way back through the story and work out what the story actually means based on the climax. Um, this is what Jesus does to the Old Testament, all right? This is what we've been doing uh, at the project in Ecclesiastes. It's like, let's look at what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Then what we're going to do is we're going to go to Jesus and look backwards and see what it actually means. Uh, there's a story uh, that uh, Luke writes about in Luke chapter 24, which you probably know about, many of you, the road to Emmaus. Well, what, well what's the story? There's a couple of guys walking on a road. Jesus comes alongside these guys walking on the road. And they're just going, we haven't got a clue what's going on here. Jesus just got whacked. We thought he was going to be the hero. We're in trouble. We don't know what to do. It's just like our heads are spinning. And uh, he ends up saying, look, you're, you're slow of heart and you're a bit dull. You're a bit stupid. All right? And he doesn't say exactly like that. But that's, it's like dull of heart. All right? That's kind of like the, the grand Bible way of saying, look, you, you, just, you don't get it. All right? You're just missing something. And what does he actually do? It says here in verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's he done? He's actually said, what I just did on the cross is the lens through which you need to view everything that's come before. Now, if you've ever read the Bible and uh, you've read the New Testament and you've looked at the way that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's a bit random sometimes. Is anyone with me on that? It's kind of go, if you are back in history you would actually not get that out of that passage, all right? Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about here, right? It's actually the climax of the story becomes an interpretive lens through which you view everything else. And that's what you see in Jesus. And it's what you see in the New Testament writers. So we're going to try and do that 
But in typical Ecclesiastes style, we just need to get really uh, disheartened first. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's get right into that. We're going to look at uh, wealth and power, wealth and insatiability and wealth and eternity. Number one, wealth and power, Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1 to 8. And I want you to think here about the power of money. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay on, uh, hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Now, money has power, doesn't it? You see, what we just read in Ecclesiastes 2 is actually specifically about pleasure, but how did he get the pleasure? He got it through money, probably, largely. If you look at all the things that he actually did there, you'd just be going, okay, so money actually got himself. He's got him something. You see, if, if you pull out some cash, here we go. Actually, I, don't, I have no money. <laughs> I have a remote. I was going to pull out $20 US because that's all I've got in my wallet, which comes in really handy when my kids want me to buy stuff. I, just, I don't have any money. I've got $20 US. That's it. All right, but if, if you hold up a note, you hold up this $100 note, it's plastic, right? It actually doesn't have any value really in and of itself. I mean, the whole debate just recently was, do we need to ditch the five-cent piece because it costs six cents to make it, all right? But the bottom line with, uh, with money is money is not valuable in itself. It's valuable because of what we can get with it, right? It's, it's valuable for what it can do for you. So what can money provide for you? Well, clearly, according to Ecclesiastes 2, it can get you pleasure, all right? Anyone like pleasure? Oh, come on, you're pathetic, right? Who likes pleasure here? Yeah, you all do, right? That's your whole life, right? You're doing a lot of stuff just because you just want to enjoy yourself. When things go badly, what do you want to do? Well, you organize ways to stop them going badly because no one likes life going badly, right? Is that true? Yeah. I mean, if you saw someone, you, that person likes pain and they like everything going badly for them all the time, you'd go, there's something wrong with them, all right? In the same way that there's something wrong with somebody who just wants pleasure all the time, all right? But there is something wrong. There's, there's something natural about that, but money can get you pleasure. Money can get you control, can't it? It can get you control to some extent over your health. If you get in trouble, the fridge breaks down. You can buy your way out of trouble or difficulty. It can get you security. You have a little bit of cash in the bank account and you just feel a bit calmer. I can handle things. Something bad can happen. I'm going to be okay because money's going to help me with that. It can get you power. I mean, in a capitalist economy, a consumer-driven economy, uh, money gets you power. You better believe that and you can trust in it. And, and do you know, have a look up here, and, and I'm going to get back to this in a minute. Look at this. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Money can get your power over people, can't it? True? Now, 
Let's just stop here for a minute. Wealth gives you power over people. All right? And I would ask you this question, does wealth give you, does your wealth give you power over people? Do you use your wealth to get power over people? What you can see here from uh, Coalette, which is his nickname, Ecclesiastes writer's nickname, uh, what you can see here is that, is that one person is actually owned by someone else or actually their property. Now just stop for a minute and think about humanity. Think about humanity back through the centuries. For those of you who know history, humans have shown, have they not, that they have a desire to own and control other people. True? They just have. Like it's just littered the whole way through history. And I would just su- submit to you today, why do you think that you would be any different? You see, there's a, there's a desire for power in humanity to dictate to others the service that we want for ourselves. You hear that? This is the service that I want and my money is going to get that. You know, and this may be uh, to some extent reflected in the Australian rebellious kind of spirit. I'm not going to let you tell me what to do. I'm gonna, you need to do what I think that you want, uh, what I want you to do for me. Don't you control me. I'm going to stick it to you if you try and do that. And I want to ask you today, if you're an employer, do you treat, do you treat your employees with dignity? Or are they a means for you to have the lifestyle that you want? Now, this is, uh, this is a deep pit where I'm just about to go here, but it's worth mentioning, right? Do you even care where your clothes are made? Do you even care about... I mean, you, you think about it, right? You think about like a... I mean, this is... A, I'm under this word today as much as you, right? But you think about it, right? Do, do you care that your clothing might be made in a sweatshop where someone's been oppressed? in another country do you, do you get what i'm saying oh, we might be more like this verse seven than, we, than we'd like to think what's that what is it if someone is being oppressed somewhere and we're getting cheap goods because they're being oppressed we're controlling someone else by our money for our own purposes aren't we Wars, crimes, theft, murders, family feuds, betrayals of friendship, parents growing up without knowing their kids, kids growing up neglected or bribed and entitled, these all flow from greed. Covetousness, discontentment, envy and the dream of wealth and power. So I just want to encourage you this morning to just stop. Before you say, I'm not the one that uses wealth to get power, over people i'm not the one that uses wealth to get power to have the life that i want just stop for a minute and just go no i might be i might be money has incredible power number two wealth and insatiability insatiability is an, is a, uh, an inability to be satisfied this is ecclesiastes 4 verse 4 to 6 listen to this then i saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's what envy of his neighbor is that true <laughs> i reckon like seriously like in a, a an advertising marketing driven culture right 
that's telling you you can have the lifestyle that you want, you better believe there's a whole bunch of that going on for us. He says, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Do you ever look at the person next to you who's in the same kind of step on the ladder as you? You get what I'm saying? It's not like there's streets ahead of you. It's not like they're Bill Gates, right? You, you probably don't compare yourself to Bill Gates, but you probably just look at your neighbours and you look at other people in the church and there's just almost subconscious comparisons. Like you don't even kind of quite catch yourself doing that. Listen to this, verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of striving, of toil and striving after the wind. I've uh, shown this, uh, some of this clip before, but I'm going to show it again because I think it's really uh, perceptive and probing. This is a, a guy called Alain de Botton, who's a bit of an armchair philosopher. He wrote a book called Status Anxiety, and uh, this is the, uh, the TV series that came out of it, just the first couple of minutes. past 200 years in the West have seen staggering increases in wealth and economic opportunity. And yet, there have been no comparable increases in our level of happiness. Despite being so much richer than a few generations ago, we're often more anxious about our own importance and achievements than our grandparents were. I call this modern state of restlessness and dissatisfaction status anxiety. I want to explain where I think much of it has come from, how it affects our lives, and what I believe we could do about it. If we're surprised that being richer hasn't made us happy and secure, it's because we don't understand the psychology of satisfaction. When do we feel we have enough? What enables us to feel prosperous and content? chiefly a comparison with other people. But it's not good enough to compare ourselves to people who are very remote from us in time and place. It's not going to help anyone to feel very rich to be told that they have infinitely more money than one of their medieval ancestors who lived in a mud-walled cottage. We only feel content when we compare ourselves to people who are like us, our friends and colleagues, our neighbours. In short, the sense of being a success is all relative. No one spends much time resenting the Queen or Bill Gates, but we're liable to get extremely resentful if someone we think is basically just like us moves into a bigger house or gets a slightly better job. We most envy people who we take to be our equals. The modern world is based around the idea that we're all essentially equal. Not necessarily financially equal, but equal in terms of rights and opportunities. It's a lovely idea which brings with it one nasty side effect. In a world in which you could believe that those at the top belonged to an inherently superior caste, you didn't need to feel humiliated by anything you didn't have. You might detest those who had more than you, but you didn't need to feel ashamed or anxious. But in a world in which everyone is supposed to be equal, but where there's still a lot of inequality around, it's hard not to take the achievements of others as an implicit reproach for everything you don't have and haven't done. Do you think he's right? Uh, it's, I, I think it's a pretty good commentary on, uh, on where we're at. And he goes on to talk uh, in his book about the anxiety that um, is associated with people who are thinking about their status all the time and how that actually drives 
the economy. You see, Proverbs 14, verse 30 says this. It says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Uh, I say this periodically, and I'll just keep saying it. It's strange that in Western churches, we don't hear people confessing the sin of covetousness very much. Like, that's odd, isn't it? Isn't that, wouldn't you think that that would be like the number one thing for us? You know, with the marketing machine going on around us, with the, the drive to buy stuff and that you are what you own. Wouldn't that be happening more often? And see, some of you are going, well, I don't have stuff. Well, that doesn't free you from the sin of covetousness. All right? If you don't have much money, it doesn't mean you're off the hook. You probably could have as big an issue as someone who's got heaps of money. Maybe a bigger issue. And the issue here is not, as, as you can hear, it's not actually money. It's not actually having money. I'm not saying it's bad to have money. But it is bad to be envious. It is bad to be covetousness and it's not good. It's not good for you. And this is, this is kind of where I'm going in the second point. It's not like there's a behavioural problem with you because you're, you, you just want more and more stuff. No, you're actually longing. You're, you're like an insane person in a raft that's stuck on the high seas drinking salt water all the time. And you just keep drinking and drinking and drinking and the thing is making you more crazy. The more you drink it, this is what it does. And this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes would say to you. He had everything and it didn't work. He's going, getting everything is like being in a raft on the high seas and drinking salt water until you go mad. That's what he's saying. Oh, do you hear him? And some of you this morning are probably sitting there and you're going, I think he's wrong. I think it won't work out like that. I think it'll be okay if I get everything that I want. I think I'll be happy. And he's going, you won't be happy. Stop. Stop. And even if you don't have much stuff and you're going, I don't even know how I'm going to get more money, but if I had it, I think I'd be happy. Listen to this guy. He had everything. He had everything. Now, where does this all go back to? Well, you know where it all goes back to. It goes back here to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve are in the garden and the snake comes in and tempts them. They're in a perfect, perfect state. The snake comes in and he says this, if you just have one more thing, you'll be happy. Doesn't he? Just one more. Yeah, you got all the trees in the garden. I mean, you think about how many species of plants there are in the world. He's going, yeah, you got all of those, but you just need one more. And isn't that just the byline of most marketing in our culture? You just need one more thing. You just need our product. You just need the newest phone. You just need a house that's a little bit bigger. You just need a newer car. And then you'll be happy. You're just, you're missing that one thing. You're not going to be complete if you have just one more. Do you hear me? You won't be. <laughs> There's not a problem with having one more, but I'm just saying you won't be complete. Don't go after that thing thinking that you're going to be complete. Well, we need to just stop and think about this a little bit, don't we? Clive Hamilton's an Australian guy um, and he wrote this book uh, years ago called Affluenza and he's updated it just recently, 2014. Affluenza is the bloated, sluggish and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. This is an official definition of it. An epidemic of stress, overwork, waste and indebtedness caused by the dogged pursuit of the Australian dream and an unsustainable addiction to economic growth. That's affluenza, and I'm going to read a whole bunch out of it. I'm going to put it on the screen because this guy makes some really perceptive comments. Here we go. The meaning of life has tantalised philosophers for centuries. 
Yet in recent years, Australians have been acting as though they've found the answer to own a big house and receive a $10,000 pay rise. This guy's not even a Christian, as far as I can tell, right? So just keep that in mind. He's, he's nailing something. Despite public endorsement of this belief, in quieter moments, most of us would admit that we need much more if we are to live a fulfilling life. Is that you? Just need a little bit more? Just need that extra thing? See, it's not about having the extra stuff, right? And this is the thing, like, this is why I'm saying it's not about how much you've got, it's about how much you want. You get that? This, this is what this is about. This book poses one simple question. If the economy has been doing so well, why are we not becoming happier? Good question. Absolutely. In Seeking an Answer, we look at how Australians live, work and consume. We describe how corporations, advertisers, the media and politicians operate to ensure that Australians are always thinking about what they lack like, just stop there. You're just going, yeah, like that is our culture. Like, just think about what you lack. Why? Because that's going to drive economic growth. That's going to drive the economy. Rather than using the opportunities our wealth presents for living rich lives and building a better society. Hey, that's a novel idea, isn't it? <laughs> we, could, we should try that sometime. In the private domain, Australia is beset by a constant rumble of complaint as if we are experiencing hard times. When asked whether they can afford to buy everything they really need, listen to this, nearly two-thirds of Australians say, no. If we remember that Australia is one of the world's richest countries and that Australians today have real incomes three times higher than in 1950, it is remarkable that such a high proportion feels so deprived. <coughs> Average earnings exceed $50,000 a year, yet a substantial majority of Australians who experience no real hardship and indeed live lives of abundance believe that they have difficulty making ends meet and that they qualify as battlers. <laughs> you see what I'm saying here? This is that, just look at the heart. Look at what's going on underneath this thing. Listen to this. I hope that getting this income level would make me feel con contented. I do have more stuff, but it doesn't seem to have done the trick. I obviously need to set my goals higher. I'm sure I'll be happy when I'm earning an extra $10,000 because then I'll be able to buy the other things I want. <laughs> of course, raising the threshold of desire in this way creates an endless cycle of self-deception. Like the horizon, our desires always seem to stay ahead of where we are. Who knows that? This cycle of hope and disappointment lies at the heart of consumer capitalism. I think he's right. Our own achievements are never enough in a society like this. As Gore Vidal said, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Come on, fess up. Have you ever felt like that? Put your hand up. Come on, be honest. I have. Absolutely. The rest of you are just somewhere else. Don't know. Uh, even if we do come out in front of our peers, the chances are we will start to compare ourselves with, ourselves with those on the next rung of the ladder. And new discontent causes us to set our goals higher. Still, in a world dominated by money hunger, if our expectations continue to rise in advance of our incomes, we will never achieve a level of income that satisfies. Perceptive. Richard Easterlin, who did much of the early work in this field, described this phenomenon, listen to him, as the hedonic treadmill where people have to keep running in order to keep up with the others but never advance does that look like a tyranny to you but that is right but this is kind of what our culture is doing to us right and it's what we do to ourselves the only listen to him the only way to win is to stop playing the game like you got to hear that right 
This, this is what Ecclesiastes is saying, right? And some guy writing a book called Affluenza in Australia is just saying, you just need to stop. Don't play the game. Don't think you're going to get ahead. Don't think you're going to get everything you want. Just stop. Rich societies such as Australia seem to be in the grip of a collective psychological disorder. <laughs> we react with alarm and sympathy when we come across an anorexic who is convinced she is fat, whose view of reality is so obviously distorted, yet as a society surrounded by affluence, we indulge in the illusion that we are deprived. Despite the obvious failure of the continued accumulation of material things to make us happy, we appear unable to change our behaviour. We have grown fat, but we, must, but we persist in the belief that we are thin and must consume more. Perhaps we blind ourselves to the facts. Perhaps the cure seems more frightening than the disease. Or perhaps we don't know. We just don't know there is an alternative. For these reasons, the epidemic of overconsumption that pervades rich societies has been dubbed affluenza. Psychotherapist and affluenza authority Jesse O'Neill has provided a clinical definition of the condition. The collective addic addictions, character flaws, psychological wounds, neuroses and behaviour disorders caused or exacerbated by the presence of or desire for money, wealth in individuals. It takes the form of a dysfunctional or unhealthy relationship with money, regardless of one's socioeconomic level. It manifests as behaviours uh, resulting from a preoccupation with or imbalance around the money in our lives. I'm going to skip that. You get the point, right? Are you okay? Seriously, let's, let's just be honest. We've got some real struggles in this, in our society. We've got some real struggles in this, uh, in ourselves. And uh, I, I'm in the same water that you guys are in. Back to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 to 17. Listen, listen to this. This is such a penetrating observation on wealth. Listen, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Like, burn that in your forehead or something. I, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, burn it somewhere, right? That's got to be engraved in stone, all right? Because I still have inside of me that if I just get the next little bit, I'll be happy, all right? And I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of you out there, you just, on the inside, you're just going, yeah, that's just because uh, he didn't handle it properly. If I had that amount of money, I would be happy. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, who knows, this is true. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, the classic economic principle is that expenditure always rises to meet income. That's just how it works. So you get a raise, and before long, you've accumulated some stuff, and you're spending all the money that you got. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What's he saying there? He's just going, here's the thing. If, if you just get on this treadmill of loving money, the only advantage you're going to get from money is to watch it slip through your fingers. That's it. You just watch it. It's gone. Sweet is the sleeper of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, hear this, Westerners, as you came from your mother's womb, you shall go again, naked as he came. 
and you'll take nothing for your toil that you may carry away in your hand when you die. Nothing. Like you're going out, you came in buck naked and you're going out naked with nothing. All right? So let's just stop there. You're not going to live forever on this earth. Now, God's going to come and remake earth and he's going to bring people back to live on the earth, right? But in this life, you're not living forever and you don't get to take anything with you. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what pain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days, listen to this, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Anyone ever been angry because of money? It didn't work out the way you wanted it to work out or you didn't get what you thought you needed to get to be happy? Every item that you buy is one more thing to think about, talk about, clean, repair, rearrange, fret over and replace when it goes bad. You get what I'm saying? So what am I saying here? I'm saying you can actually financially, um, you can end up with some financial encumbrance that wasn't part of the deal at the start. Like someone comes along to you and says, I'm going to give you a free TV. Well, that's cool, right? That might be good. But what do I have to do with a free TV? Well, I'm going to have to get an antenna put in, all right? Uh, If the thing breaks down, I might have to take it off and get it fixed. And then there's some shows on it that I actually want to watch, but I don't want to stay up for. So then I've got to buy a recorder to record the TV show with. Do you get what I'm saying? And then we're all sitting around the TV and no one's talking as much in the house because the TV's going all the time. Do you get what I'm saying? It might have been free at the start, but it ended up with a financial and relational encumbrance at the end. And this is how it is with a lot of stuff. So some of you might go, it'd be really cool if someone gave me a free Mercedes. I think that would be cool. But who knows that once you've got a car, you've got to keep a car, don't you? You've got to feed a car petrol. You've got to get it serviced. You've got to fix it when it breaks down. You've got to put tyres on it. See, it's... Part of the problem with us is we end up in this place where it's like we end up in this tyranny where it's like we buy something, but it's not the end of it when we buy something. It's like we go, oh, I'm going to get a mobile phone. And I'm not saying that mobile phones are bad, right? But you just got to think $100 a month is $2,400 in two years. That's a lot of money. You might go pay TV and it's not bad to do pay TV, but one of the sneaky ways that things get sold to you is like it's only like 15 bucks a month. You get what I'm saying? And then it just adds up. Like how many things are 15 bucks a month? And there's lots of options for the church even. Like there's stuff that we're looking at and no one's really selling you just a complete product that you can implement very much anymore. Everything's subscription, which means that you're going to have to keep paying for that sucker every month for as long as you want to use it. You've got to be wise about it. I'm not saying you don't do it, but you've got to be wise about it. And what The writer of Ecclesiastes says here is if you start buying stuff, there's going to be an anxiety that comes in around you having the stuff and looking after it. Randy Alcorn wrote a great book called The Treasure Principle. You should get it. Everyone should get it and read it. I seriously was considering making this a campaign in the church where we're all just going to read it, right? It's like the best book on uh, on money that I've ever read. Here's what he says about Ecclesiastes 5. You ready for this? The more you have, the more you want. This is about money, right? The more you have, the more you want. This is coming out of 
I can show you the verses if, if you want to see them. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. The more you have, the more people will come after it. The more you have, the more you realise it does you no good. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind. That's, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes said in chapter 5. W.H. Vanderbilt was a, um, a railroad magnate. Listen to what he said. This is back in the 1800s. He got given $100 million in his inheritance from his dad. Listen to this. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. <laughs> there is no pleasure in it. But that's a lot of money. $200 million in the 1800s. That's a, that's a huge amount of money. And he's going, you don't want it. It'll kill you. All right, Ecclesiastes 4, 7 to 8. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You know what this talks about is a person that doesn't have anyone to hand an inheritance onto. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is going, why is, why is he working so hard? He's on his own. He's, just, he's going to lose it all. He doesn't get to keep it. What's he saying? He's saying you can't keep your wealth. You know, I remember seeing a number of years ago a news story and someone's house burnt down and, the, and the, kind of one of the taglines in it was they lost everything that they had. That happens every day when people die. That will happen one day for you. You will lose everything that you have. Everything. Everything. And so it's a good question that the writer of Ecclesiastes is throwing up there. It's like, why am I toiling? Why am I working so hard? What is the point of this? If I have to let go of all of it, what is the actual point of it? And let me just have a quick dig. What do you say to your kids about working hard at school? So you can get a good job and earn good money. Why the heck would they want to do that? Do you get what I'm saying? Isn't that dumb? Aren't we just teaching our kids the foolishness of our consumeristic culture? It is not God's call for you to teach your children to work hard at school so they can get lots of money. You're going to kill them. You need to teach your kids to work hard at school because God's given them giftings and callings and special jobs that he has for them to do in their life. And it's their job to be the best that they can with all of the gifting that, that God's given them. Amen? That's their job. Now, whether he gives them money is completely up to him. But let's not set them up on this treadmill. It's like, you want to get lots of money because you'll have a good life if you have lots of money. That's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's crap. All right? It's not going to happen. So you've got to teach your kids, son, daughter, I want you to work really hard because one day uh, God's going to ask you to give an account for the giftings and the abilities that he's given you. And he's given you some great things. So you go out there and you make them as great as you possibly can by working hard on them. See, that, that's more biblical. I'm not angry, I promise. All right. Here's, here's where we're just going to get a little bit happier. Almost. Ecclesiastes 2, 
20 to 21. So I turned around and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labours under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. Now, he's not talking about money specifically here, but you get the idea, right? You have to leave everything at some point in time. And we just looked at this before in Ecclesiastes 5. You come into the world naked, you go out naked, you don't get to keep anything. So what do we do? Well, let's go to Jesus. He's going to help us. You notice that? He always helps you. <laughs> like if you're just going, yeah, like the top line there is me. I'm giving, I've been given up to despair. All right? I'm not bagging you if you've got money. I'm not, not bagging you if you don't have money. All right? I'm just bagging you if you think that you're coveting and having stuff is going to make you happy. All right? And I am bagging you if you're using money to get power over people. All right? Well, God is, I think. Well, let's go here. What does Jesus say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, let's be clear about what Jesus is saying here, right? Jesus is not just saying that storing up earthly treasures is wrong, right? What's he saying? He's saying it's stupid. (laughs) Look look at that. He's going, stupid. Why would you do that? It's like, I mean, everyone's going, want a good investment. This is the best investment, isn't it? That is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying the best investment is to store up treasures in heaven. So what is he saying? He's saying, with your treasure, you can store up treasure. You hear that? With your treasure here, you can store up treasure. See, Jesus knows that Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5 is true. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward the heavens. He knows that that's how it rolls. That's how it goes. What what he's saying here is is like, don't just store up uh, your treasures in heaven because you might lose your wealth. He's actually saying all wealth is going to be lost every time someone dies. And some of you might go, but my heart's not in it. Well, you know what's interesting about Jesus here? Is he saying that your heart follows your treasure? (laughs) You see it? Look at the last line. If you're sitting here and you're going, but my heart is in my treasure on this earth, you know what you should do? Start investing it in God's stuff. Because your heart will follow it. It's pretty straightforward. You see, where we choose to store our treasures depends largely largely on where we think our home is. Isn't that true? Where we choose uh, to spend our treasures depends largely on where we think our home is. So here's, here's where I want to end, and this is a really positive note. You can't take your treasure with you, but you can send it on ahead. You hear that? You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. 
You can use your money to invest in treasure in heaven. Now, some of you might be a little bit uncomfortable with this, but you better believe that the Bible speaks often about rewards in heaven. All right? And it's connected. Rewards in heaven are connected in some way to how you use your money. Listen to this. Ephesians 6 verse 8. Listen to it. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Let's just start there. You know, I mean, let's just think about it. There's possibly someone keeping there. I mean, God doesn't need someone to do this, right? But imagine there's an angel that's like, just watch Peter. And can you just note everything that he does that's good because I'm going to reward him for that, including money. Doesn't that sound good? It's just like God's going, don't be lame about treasure on this earth. Like, this is exciting. It's, no one else is excited. Did I beat you up too much? This is exciting, right? He's going, don't be lame about it. I'm going to reward you. What about this one? Luke 14, 13 to 14, Jesus says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. What's going to happen? You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I mean, Proverbs talks about he who gives to the poor lends to God and God will repay him. Now, some of you sit there theologically and you just kind of go, Oh, it's a bit rough, man. Like God's given us plenty, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. Well, he just gives you more. So like he doesn't, you're kind of going, but he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to reward us for doing the right stuff. It's just enough for us to get into heaven. That's right. He doesn't have to do it, but he doesn't anyway. He loves, he loves to reward you and to bless you. And he's just going, use your money in a way, build treasure up here. You can actually send it on ahead by the way that you use it down here. I'm going to keep going. Here we go. Has anyone got an amen out there? Okay, a couple, all right. Uh, And you uh, Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, listen to this, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once. And again, listen to this verse. Not that I seek the gift. What does he seek? I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. (laughs) It's almost like he's saying, here's the thing. No one else helped me financially. This is the Apostle Paul, all right? No one else helped me. You guys helped me, and probably I might need some more help. And what I really want is I want to see your bank account go up in heaven. Do you see that? Is is anyone excited? Like, this is good, isn't it? Well, maybe the sermon's not, but this truth is good, right? It is said, it got some amens on that one, didn't I? And this one with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. Why? Because then you'll get treasure in heaven and come follow me. Like this is, like if it, I'm not an an investment advisor, right? I think Jesus is. (laughs) And this is not, it's like, you know what they say about investments, it's like diversify in case one of them goes bad. This one is not going bad ever. All right, this this is the one. This is the only investment paying returns. All right, in eternity, this is the only one. There is no other investment that pays returns like this one. Listen to uh, Hudson Taylor, uh, missionary, I think he was to uh, China. He said, "The less I spent on myself, and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become." I want to finish here. Actually, and then a quick story. 
1 Timothy 6 verse 17 to 19. Do you, do you see this here? This is, remember I talked about money gives you power and uh, people think it will satisfy them, but it doesn't. Listen to this. As for the rich in this present age, that's us, right? As for everyone sitting in the project at uh, 5 to 10 on, uh, on Sunday morning. Charge them not to be haughty. Listen to this. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Okay? Now that's powerful. You will be a powerful person if you're not setting your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Who should you set your hope on? But on God. And then, we're not bagging you for having some stuff to enjoy. All right? Paul doesn't do that. He says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So don't go home and just, you know, don't put your hiney in the car later on. Just go, oh, this is a terrible car. You know, I hate, it might be a terrible car, right? But don't say it's a terrible car just because you've got something nice. It's like Paul's going, no, just enjoy it, right? If you're rich, enjoy what you have, but here's what you need to do. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up what? Treasure. You see that? It's like, okay, so you can enjoy stuff, but don't trust in it, right? Don't think it's going to satisfy you. Trust in God. He's the one that satisfies you, and here's what you need to do. Build up treasure in heaven. As a good foundation for what? The future, right? It's like, you're going to die, right? You're going to cark it one day. It's going to be over, all right? The fat lady will sing, if I can say that, right? And it'll be done for your life. What's Paul saying? Treasure. The foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In uh, the 1920s and 30s, um, Australia experienced a great uh, depression. Uh, the Great Depression was a time of extreme hardship for people in Australia. Extreme financial hardship. Um, unemployment uh, just goes through the roof. Uh, there was a Wall Street crash in October 1929 which signalled the beginning of a severe depression for the whole industrialised world. After the crash, unemployment in Australia more than doubled to 21% in, uh, in mid-1930s and reached its peak in, mid, sorry, in, in the middle of 1930 and reached its peak in the middle of 1932 when almost 32% of Australians were out of work. Think about that. One in three people didn't have a job. The effects of the Great Depression on Australian society were devastating. People didn't have work, they didn't have uh, a steady income, they lost their homes, they were forced to live in makeshift dwellings with poor heating and sanitation. Here's uh, one survivor's account of uh, the Great Depression. People were forced into all sorts of tricks and expediencies to survive. All sorts of shabby and humiliating compromises. In thousands and thousands of homes, fathers deserted the family and went on the track uh, became itinerant workers or perhaps took to drink. Grown sons sat in the kitchen day after day playing cards, studying the horses, betting on horse racing and trying to scrounge enough for a three-penny bet or engaged in petty crime. Mothers cohabited with male boarders who were in work and who might support the family. Daughters attempted some amateur prostitution and children were in trouble with the police. In uh, 1932, something strange happened in the middle of this hardship with uh, the Great Depression. You guys would know this guy, Arthur Stace. 
1932 and 1967, Arthur Stace wrote Eternity over half a million times on the sidewalks of Sydney. It all started for him. He says in an um, interview on the Daily Telegraph in 1965, two years before his death, it all started for him when he went to hear a guy called John Ridley, who was a powerful preacher. John Ridley said this, shouting. I'm not going to shout. I wish I could shout eternity through the streets of Sydney. He repeated himself and kept shouting, eternity, eternity. And his words are ringing through my brain. This is what Stace says. His words were ringing through my brain as I left the church. Suddenly, I began crying and I felt a powerful call from the Lord to write eternity. I had a piece of chalk in my pocket and I bent down right there and wrote it. I've been writing it at least 50 times a day ever since and that's 30 years ago. I think eternity gets the message across, makes people stop and think. Now just just pause for a minute and just think, what an incredible time for this man to actually start writing eternity on the streets of Sydney in the middle of the greatest depression that the world's seen for maybe hundreds of years, I'm not sure. And he's writing it 50 times a day. Eternity, 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 eternity. And it ends up, you might remember, on the Harbour Bridge. God did that. And I, I think God would want to do that with you today. It's just like, stop living in the here and now. He would say, be wise with money. He would say, and he does say, you can enjoy the blessings that God's given you. But eternity, eternity, eternity. A.W. Tozer says, As base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Now you listen to Tozer there. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. 